Good morning, guys. Welcome to Men's Roundtable. Glad you're here. Good morning. I'm glad I'm here, honestly. Um, had a little trouble last week with a uh, uh, wife that uh, had a blood clot and uh, infection they found in a knee that was replaced back in July. And my brother's here on this uh, porch and some others gathered around me and have been supporting me and offering uh, compassion and prayers. And I thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, John, for filling in for me last week. We're gathered on uh, Chuck McBride's porch. Uh, half a dozen of us here, socially distanced, uh, keeping coronavirus uh, in mind. Guys, um, I I'm making a plea. I've made a plea before, and I'm going to make it again uh, here through the through the podcast. Uh, Phil is insistent that we're in the wilderness and we stay in the wilderness. We are now, as I understand, in a mini series of being in the wilderness while we're in the bigger series of in the wilderness. Um, I, I've, I've, I've hoped uh, that we would have a series on prosperity and blessing, uh, even just a mini series within this wilderness. But uh, I don't know. Phil's taking his cues from God and we're just not there. So we're gonna continue in the wilderness. We're going deeper into the rabbit hole, as he just said, into the wilderness. Guys, I wonder how many of you like me have just wondered, <clears throat> especially with the situation I had with my wife last week. What's God doing? Why are we in this? What's going on? What have I done? Why am I in this, God? Lord, where, where, where are you taking me? If you're not asking those questions, and Phil's got some open appointments, and you might want to talk to him. Because I don't know how you could be in the wilderness and not ask some questions. But I want to ask you, when you're in the wilderness, have you found the blessing? Have you found the silver lining to the cloud? Have you found a, an opportunity to bless somebody else or to receive a blessing that was kind of unexpected? The blessings I had last week from brothers that surrounded me when I was in need. You know, in the midst of that, uh, a relationship was restored. My brother-in-law that I haven't talked to in over 15 years. And I talked on the phone daily. And uh, we're able to make amends in some things that we had that went on. And so while we're in the wilderness and we're in a mini-series of being deeper in the wilderness, I'm going to continue to look for those opportunities that God presents to bless me. I hope you will too. I want to thank Chris and Chris. Chris, excuse me, Jeff and Jeff. Yeah, I've got a little, I got a little uh, fatigue going on. It's 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 three J's. I'm one of those, and uh, and C. But the three J's this week were Jeff, Jeff, and John, and Chris for putting the handout together. Uh, if you haven't printed it out, look there on the on the computer page, and you'll see the link for it. Print it out. Uh, the notes are there. I hope you'll follow along with us. Let me help us with a prayer. Heavenly Father. We thank you, and I thank you so much for this day, for the opportunity to gather with my brothers, for those men that are joining us live and those that will join us later in the recorded message. I thank you for them. God, I thank you for the blessings that you give us in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the wilderness. I ask that you would be upon us. I ask that your peace would be with us reminding us that you gave all in the wilderness for our sins so that we could be restored to God the Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Jeff, can you hear me? Okay. Good morning, uh, everybody. I appreciate the guys being here on Chuck's patio. Chuck, thank you. Um, I understand you're going into the landscape business. Uh, I know what you're going to be doing this weekend. I can see that. <laughs> I've got to plant something. Exactly. Chuck's not letting us out of here until somebody plants a flower. He's got a, a, a whole uh, a sled, it uh, looks like, of uh, petunias or something uh, getting ready to be planted so we all know what uh, chuck's going to be doing this weekend uh but appreciate the guys being uh here on the on chuck's patio uh with us and 
Appreciate you tuning in wherever you are with your uh, cup of coffee and um, um, ready to hear from God this morning. So uh, I have a song for you, and uh, you know I I, have, I I love our playlist. Uh, I'm, I'm listening to it on a regular basis. Hope you are on Spotify, uh, Into the Wilderness, and uh, man, we would be amiss to not include this song um, that we're going to play this morning on our playlist. And um, you know, there's numerous people who have recorded um, how great they are. Uh, in, in my generation, the most notable is George Beverly Shea, who sang this consistently on the Billy Graham uh, crusade. You can't uh, not think of George Beverly Shea not singing this song. Um, but man, uh, Vince Gill playing the guitar with Carrie Underwood singing. Um, I hope you'll just settle down and really listen to this and um, allow your heart to be awakened. How great thou art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. We need to hear the voice of God in the wilderness. Uh, may you hear him this morning, and may he, uh, he open your heart to what he has for us this morning. How great thou art.
listen to that all day long. All day long. You might. Is it not on? Let me double check. I've got a green light here. Okay, hold on. Uh, it's right. me. <clears throat> all right, here we go. Amen. <laughs> you missed my amen earlier, so amen, amen, amen. Listen to that all day. Um, let's uh, dig in, guys. Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. Words from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Follow with me as we uh, begin in our uh, continuing series, Into the Wilderness, Understanding and Embracing the Dark Times of Your Life. Words translated as wilderness occur nearly 300 times in the Bible. Wilderness uh, seasons are brutal. Yes, they are. Right, Joe? Yeah. But God is powerfully at work in the wilderness seasons of our lives. The only question is, do we have eyes to see? And especially in our passage today, uh, I would say, do we have ears to hear? In order for God to give us the choice whether or not to trust him, he must present us with a moment of crisis. And since he wants us to seek help from him, he brings us through the wilderness to remove all other help first. When we're in a wilderness season, like we are now, it's easy to lose sight of God's protection, provision, and preparation. We might even wonder, how can I trust God's greatness or, or goodness when I'm in this desolate place? But remember Jesus. He went through the ultimate wilderness, the desolation and humiliation of dying under the curse of God. If that is the measure of God's love and commitment to us, then we can trust him in our own present wilderness seasons. Let's journey together. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And as, uh, as Joe alluded to, we're kind of in a series within a series. Um, and um, we're going to continue on uh, with character number two in our seven men who have faced the uh, wilderness. And um, we're going to look at Elijah this morning and his wilderness experience. And um, as I mentioned last week, I've been inspired by uh, Eric Metaxas' book, um, Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. I would highly recommend this book to you. And we're going to dig into uh, character number two in Metaxas' book as just kind of our uh, case study. Um, but uh, pick up a pen. I have three questions for you. Um, and let's do a little journaling um, and dig in, engage. So the first question I would ask you is, how have you grown in this present wilderness? So, again, you know, it's hard to, you know, uh, believe that uh, second week in March or so, uh, when we uh, uh, found everything shutting down, um, uh, I certainly didn't think. Uh, you know, middle of October, that we would be where we are. You know, I thought this was going to be somewhat of a uh, short-term deal. And, uh, you know, we're six, seven months into this thing and continuing uh, to journey on. And I would, I would say that I've grown through this. My intimacy with God, my renewed commitment to journal daily, to listen to the voice of God. Um, Carla and Abigail uh, did um, uh, their hardwired to heal workshop um, on our uh, patio in Fairhope uh, this past weekend. I got kicked off the patio, so I couldn't watch the football game. I'm, I'm not, I'm not bitter about it, especially after the Tennessee Georgia game. I mean, yeah, well, the first half was great. Yeah. And, and then uh, I think, I think COVID-19 struck the whole team in the second half and they didn't come out. They, they, they had some uh, other guys come out, but anyway, uh, what happened on our patio was far more important than a football game. Um, in the midst of this, uh, you know, pandemic and wilderness experience that we're in, then, uh, I mean, it was so uh, great that after uh, the workshop, uh, Abigail and Carla and I sat together and they just shared with me what God did. And uh, it's like people's lives were changed. Um, very, very powerful uh, in terms of working with trauma, 
the scars of um, uh, the uh, background of our lives. And God brings healing even in the midst of uh, wilderness. I hope that you can say that you're in a better place personally, even though we continue to journey in this wilderness. And then uh, question number two is certainly related. What have you done to avoid growth, give in to your anxiety, and allow fear to intimidate you? And again, uh, that's just a invitation uh, to confess our brokenness. Uh, how has fear uh, controlled you? Um, how have you been controlling your life instead of trusting God? Uh, how is control uh, an issue in your relationships? Um, is your wife and your kids telling you, Daddy, you're so controlling? Um, that's, not, that, that's not a compliment <laughs> at that point. And then even addictions. My goodness. Um, I was driving into my office yesterday morning, and uh, I was amazed. I was listening to uh, some uh, of the leaders of uh, uh, World Health Organization. And he was going through, and I was really surprised. He wasn't like, you know, a conservative political or liberal political uh, person trying to sway uh, influence his way or that way. He was uh, supposedly a World Health Organization guy just stating the facts. Um, and he was uh, talking about that um, uh, world poverty could double. Mental health issues are uh, the, uh, the pandemic that we're dealing with. Uh, hunger and uh, um, many issues that are coming out of this uh, whole wilderness experience of the pandemic is becoming far worse than the COVID-19 itself. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, ways to not handle this well. And um, our study in this wilderness uh, hopefully anchors us in God, and God always makes a way. So this third question, who do you know that's in the wilderness? And we all are. Um, God, I am here, and I'm trusting you through this wilderness experience. So let's dig in um, to Elijah and turn over to um, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. And um, I, have to, I have to tell you that uh, I fell in love with the story of Elijah through um, one of my great teaching mentors, Howard Hendricks. And those of you that know Howard Hendricks or know of his teaching, Man, I was privileged to sit under him and have uh, breakfast with him a couple times. And uh, his uh, son, Bill Hendricks, led Carla to the Lord at Pine Cove Christian Camp as her counselor when she was 13 years old. So uh, we, we have a, 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 I know Bill Hendricks, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a famous person, but I know some uh, and uh, uh, godly guys and um, um, uh so Hendrix uh, has a book on Elijah. I would, it's 64 pages long. It's really uh, a teaching sermon uh, that uh, he put into a book on Elijah. And that's when I first became exposed to Elijah, was listening to Howard Hendricks teach on 1 Kings 19 that we're going to dig into. Um, the setting here is Elijah, of course, is God's man for the time. Um, God instructs Elijah to go in and uh, tackle the um, um, gods um, uh, of Baal that uh, Jezebel has brought in. Now, it's interesting, you know, who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the queen of Israel. I mean, you have to get this straight. It's not like Jezebel was the queen of the Amorites, or queen of the Midianites, or queen of the Mosquito Bites. Uh, I mean, yeah, she wasn't queen of the brothel. You know, she was queen of Israel. Now, that's important because Israel, you know, those guys that God led through, or uh, Moses led through the uh, wilderness and crossed over the uh, Jordan and was God's chosen people, they were being led by an evil queen that brought, had brought in 
the uh, the uh, uh, Baal and all the prophets of Baal as the national religion. I mean, you know, we're in a political season in our own country, and there's all kinds of talk one way or the other that, man, our nation's in trouble. Well, yeah, it, it could very well be, depending on which way we go and however, however you see it. But it's just like Jezebel was the queen of Israel. Get that straight. And, and God had brought uh, Elijah in to be able to go up against the prophets of Baal, and he defeated them. And you can read uh, uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18. And I mean, uh, Elijah had this marvelous victory. You know, it's kind of like Ole Miss beating Alabama. Oh, see, wait a minute. Uh, that didn't happen, did it? I, I'm sorry. Oh, and how about how about them state guys? How about that state team? Yeah, well, uh, well, again, it, again, you know, none of us are celebrating around here uh, right now, and of course Tennessee, you know, all that. But anyway, Elijah had this great victory. So we pick up at chapter 19. Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. Can you imagine that? I mean. Again, put yourself in that setting. Ahab reports to Jezebel, this is what happened. I mean, he comes in and he he kicks all the prophets out, kills them. They die. Hundreds of them. And Jezebel, he, uh, he reported what Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a message to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. Wow, man, Jezebel. Now, here's here's what we're looking at uh, this morning. First of all, again, Elijah uh, is our case study. And just as we did last uh, week with Gideon, we're going to look at lessons that we gain from Elijah. And as we begin to dig into this <coughs> with Elijah, we have to expect opposition. I mean, did you really think that you were going to come to Jesus somehow and and it was going to be easy? Yeah. Jeff says yes. That's what Jeff thought. Well, you know, that's Jeff, you know. And, you know, none of the rest of us thought that, right? Only Jeff would think that. No, dude. It's like Jezebel, she was a foreign-born queen. She wasn't a Jew, but she was the queen of Israel. Now you can go back and, and read the whole history of that. We don't have time to go into that this morning. But she had instituted Baalism. That was the national religion. And, um, you know, God was, he was going to clean that out. But when you start attacking uh, the enemy like that, there's going to be opposition. And can you imagine... Um, again, Elijah has experienced uh, the greatest victory of his life. Elijah wins, you know, and then his life is being threatened. He's exhausted. He's worn out. He's played the best game, if you will, of his life. And Jezebel says, by tomorrow, you'll be dead. Now, I want you to turn over to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, I mean, again, all through the Old Testament, you know, we have types of Jesus, types of Jesus. Jesus' life is being portrayed um, in, in scene after scene in the Old Testament. We, we see kind of reflected in a form in Jesus' life. It's, it's like, the, again, the Old Testament is a preview of coming attractions in so many ways. In John chapter 12, similar scene happens in Jesus' life. John chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said all this and then went into hiding. Isn't that interesting? Jesus went into hiding. 
I don't think Jesus went into hiding because he was afraid. He went into hiding to make sure, you know, that Easter wasn't in October, <laughs> if you will. You know, there, there was a timing to everything, you know. Um, all these God signs he had given them, and they still didn't get it, still wouldn't trust him. This proved that the prophet Isaiah was right. God who believed what we preached. God who believed what we preached, who recognized God's arm outstretched and ready to act. First, they wouldn't believe. Then they couldn't. Again, just as Isaiah said, their eyes are blinded, their hearts are hardened, so that they wouldn't see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and turn to me, God, so I could heal them. Isaiah said these things after he got a glimpse of God's overflowing glory that would pour through the Messiah. On the other hand, a considerable number of from the ranks of the leaders did believe. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out in the open with it. Isn't that interesting? They were believers, but they had to stay underground. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. And when push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than for God's glory. Wow. That's convicting. That's convicting. Am I afraid to come out and proclaim myself as a God follower, or do I stay in hiding? Um, in this passage, in First Kings with Elijah, it's like we can expect opposition, and Jezebel uh, was after Elijah's life. So let's go back to the passage, see what Elijah does. So when Elijah, verse 3, when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. So again, he's up north uh, in uh, Israel, and in the southern part um, of the nation of Israel, or what was the whole nation, that was the northern part, uh, he runs down to the southern part to Judah, uh, Beersheba. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert. Another day's journey, he came to a, a lone broom bush, a bush and collapsed in its shade. He collapsed. I remember Dr. Hendricks, Howie, uh, prof, as he would call himself, talking about the depression of Elijah when I first heard this years ago. And, you know, in my uh, uh, 20s and early 30s, I struggled with depression consistently. And I understand now that there was just so many things in, in, in my own heart that I needed to have unpacked that I'd never unpacked. And, and the more that we compact that, 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 that needs to be expressed, uh, it becomes um, compacted. And then that which becomes compacted becomes depressed. And oftentimes depression is the unexpressed grief, uh, uh, mourning, and loss that needs to be expressed. Elijah's sadness, his worry, his fears was becoming compressed. He is running for his life. Wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. That's amazing. Have you ever just wanted to die? I mean, again, you know, uh, 48 hours, 72 hours before, we won! And how fast it can change. How fast it can change. Pr praise God, Joe, for you and Kelly. I mean, you guys have been fighting a battle, but my goodness, thank God you're not reporting worser news but it but it could happen with with all of us and and guys sitting here on the patio we've all gone through times of like man you know if i'd have talked to you 24 hours before that event it's like man you know life is good i love jesus now all of a sudden boom i'm scared to death my life has changed we never know Elijah wanted to die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted. Exhausted. You ought to circle that. Underline that. Note that. Exhausted. I'm telling you guys, physical exhaustion will make cowards of us all. Will it not? I mean, all of us in some form are like three-year-olds. 
you know, you can always tell a three-year-old um, when they're hungry, they're wet, um, and they need to sleep. It's like you can't, you know, it's okay, sweetheart. It's the fourth quarter, and when the fourth quarter's over, I'll change your diaper and get you something to eat. <laughs> no. A three-year-old that is hungry, tired, and wet is inconsolable. And we're like that, in a sense. You know, we're a little more sophisticated. You know, hopefully we don't pee in our pants uh, anymore. Um, but it... <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it but but it's like physical exhaustion physical exhaustion will make cowards of us all and that's what was happening with elijah suddenly an angel shook him awake and said get up and eat and then this is so cool he looked around and to his surprise right by his head was a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water and he ate the meal and went back to sleep huh he was exhausted. God woke him up, fed him, and said, let's go back to sleep. Sometimes all you need is to go back to sleep. That's all you need. The angel of God came back, shook him awake, and said, get up and eat some more. He didn't say, what are you doing here? He just like, eat some more. You, you've got a long journey ahead of you. So, so he got up, ate, and drank his fill, and, and then he set out. He needed rest. He needed food. Man, think about that. Sometimes we need to take a break. And, and the time that you're in physical exhaustion is not the time to evaluate your life, to do, to do your life goals. No, you just need some rest. He got up and ate, drank, filled, set out, nourished by that meal. He walked 40 days and night all the way to the mountain of God, to Horab. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. More rest. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what does that sound like? Isn't that interesting? And, and where does he go? Where does he go? Do you know what Mount Horab is? More, Horab is Sinai. Just, just, just um, another name that the Bible uses for Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? You know, it's where God met Moses. It's like, dude, this is like symbolism all over the place. This is like a new Moses. This is like going back, reflecting Moses. I'm going to draw Moses into the scene again um, so, so that we can actually see Jesus and what Jesus does. Once again, what we see here is that God will take us um, into difficult places. And invite us to face your fear. The Bible teaches very clearly over and over that if you really want to grow, you've got to work with your fear. What are you afraid of? In my counseling practice, I continually am working with, with fear. It's like the nasty, nasty in the room. And we got to find the fear. And when you start finding what you're afraid of and then how you've protected yourself from that fear, the strategies that you've come up with to, to handle your fears, wow, then we start moving from fight, flight, freeze, fawn to facing. It's like the five F's of growth, four are negative, one is positive. So our uh, defenses are anchored in those four F's, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. But what the Bible keeps telling us is face, face, see it, deal with reality. And that's what God is doing with Elijah, face your fear. And so continuing on, uh, latter part of verse 9, then the word of God came uh, to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, what does that sound like again? God, after the fall of Adam and Eve, moved from declarative uh, ways of dealing with man into questions. Up until 
the fall of Adam and Eve, God had just said, you know, go into the garden, rule, subdue, have dominion, you know, have a good time, enjoy, uh, and just kind of instructing them, declarative uh, proclamations. And then what God started doing with man, he started asking questions. You know, I've learned in my counseling practice that, you know, good coaches, good counselors, uh, supposedly, I've read about them, ask good questions. <laughs> uh, I, I, I try to read about those good counselors so, so I can try to be reasonably skilled at what I do. But it's like asking good questions like God did. What are you doing here? He never scolded Elijah. He never rebuked Elijah. He just invites Elijah to begin to talk. You've got to talk. I've been working my heart out for God of the angel armors. Uh, uh, this is Elijah's response. This is said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the place of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Wow. Somebody call the ambulance. You know, poor Elijah. And then he was told, Go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. Now, this, this is so cool. Uh, th th this is the scene that I want to see Steven Spielberg capture on screen, you know? Red Sea, Charlton Heston. Steven Spielberg, you got to film. First Kings 19. Listen to this. A uh, see. A hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't to be found in the wind. Wow, imagine that. After the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Now, Elijah's experiencing this. This is real. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then listen to this. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. And when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave and stood there. A quiet voice asked, so Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? There's, <laughs> there's that question again. What are you doing here? And Elijah said it again. <laughs> I've been working my heart out for God, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant and destroyed your places of worship and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Somebody call the ambulance. It's like he just heard the voice of God, and Elijah is still living in his complaint. And God said, Go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazarel, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. Finally, anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from Abel Maloa to succeed you as prophet. Anyone who escapes death by Hazarel will be killed by Jehu, and anyone who escapes death by Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Meanwhile, I'm preserving myself. 7,000 souls, the knees that haven't bowed to the God Baal, the mouths that have kissed his image, haven't kissed his image. Again, what God is saying there is that in this process, you can always assume consequences. Um that God speaks, and he's basically saying uh, to Elijah, I've got this. I've not abandoned you. I've not abandoned my people. In fact, there's going to be a remnant, and, there, and God always has a remnant. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing throughout history. You can find God's people raised up in some of the darkest places, in the darkest times. Um, until Jesus comes back, you can't kill the gospel. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Hitler couldn't wipe out the Jews, and nobody's ever going to be able to wipe out the remnant. God always makes a way. And that's, that's this last part in verse 18, um, that we're not alone. And that's what he's trying to get across to Elijah. 
um, I've got this. I will bring judgment on those that seem to um, be winning. They're not going to win. And Elijah, you're not alone. And he, and he gives him a team of people. Um, and El- Elisha will be uh, uh, the one who will uh, uh, take over for Elijah. And he promises him that there'll be a remnant of 7,000. It's a powerful picture of a man who has won and then is, is being um, intimidated um, and feels exhausted that once again, God grabs him by the hand and says in his quiet voice, I've got this and I'm with you. When was the last time that you really heard the voice of God? It's not typically in the dramatic ways that we wish it was sometimes, but it's like get in a quiet place and know, be still and know that I'm God. I want to... Um, um, alert you, um, uh, awaken you, if you will, to William Wilberforce, and that's the character number two in Metaxas's book. Um, William Wilberforce, the easiest way, the best way to get to know Wilberforce is uh, watch the movie Amazing Grace, which is the movie of, of uh, Wilberforce's life. Wilberforce, through his 20s and um, as, a, as a young man, was just uh, he was in politics even then, uh, but he was a gambler, a uh, womanizer. Uh, he had the early life of uh, uh, like um, Augustine. If you've ever read the Confessions of Augustine and you know his testimony, Wilberforce was similar to that. Um, and then he comes to the Lord. And uh, an amazing story of how he worked for 40 years to abolish slavery in England. Uh, what's also true about Wilberforce is that he um, had all kinds of legislation passed uh, for the protection of animals, um, and animals were being abused. And Wilberforce, when his life was being changed by God, started being um, a, a voice for all of those animals and humans alike who were being um, mistreated. Metaxas writes this, Wilberforce's story is so fascinating and so inspiring that I thought it's important to recount the short version of it in this volume. His life stands as a shining example of what one human being submitted to God's purposes for his life is capable of doing. I you to watch this clip and see how God used one man. Hull's most famous son is William Wilberforce, and as you can see, he has a commanding view of the city. He was the local MP, and for over 40 years, he campaigned to bring an end to slavery. He was born in this house in 1759, the son of a wealthy merchant. Kofi and I went to meet historian John Oldfield to find out more about this remarkable man of faith. So here we're entering some of the family rooms, and you can see uh, here, uh, this is uh, Wilforce's ceremonial dress. Ah, right. It was quite short. Yes, we think about five foot three, nothing more. A world presence. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there is this sense that when this man starts to speak, then he comes to life. What do you think it would have been like to meet someone like him? I can imagine the scene if it's like a tavern or a bar, mm. the heads are turning, who's this guy? Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, actually, no, we've got to listen in and hear what he's got to say. Yeah. Oh, was he always a man of faith? No, no, he wasn't. Well, by his own account, he was quite rebellious in his youth at Cambridge. He liked to entertain and stay out late and all those things. But then there is this crucial moment around about 1785. He becomes a committed Christian in the sense that he's much more concerned about rules of personal faith, prayer, Bible reading, and so I'm a serious Christian. Wilberforce came to see slavery as the ultimate sin in a world that accepted it as a necessary trade. Here is a, a neck brace, which would have been used in the uh, West Indies, and this very wow. powerfully brings home just the inhumanity and cruelty of of plantation slavery across the Americas. It brings it uh, definitely to life, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, and like yeah. it just shows they were just property. It was more like livestock, wasn't it? You know, they were yeah. owned, they were there for a purpose, and their yeah. purpose wasn't their rights off living. Yeah. He spent almost 50 years making speeches and gathering petitions to force change, 
1833, just three days before he died, he received word of the campaign's success. I mean, ultimately, it's his religious faith that drives him on. And the last piece of news he received was that the House of Commons had actually passed the bill to abolish colonial slavery in the British West Indies. So there's a wonderful sort of poetry to that moment. It's an incredible story, it, isn't it's it? It's an incredible story. Uh, uh, what, what does he mean to the people of Hull now, would you say? You know, is he still relevant? No, definitely. Like, he's someone that went against the grain, went against the, the social norm. It gives you a little bit of a boost to say, okay, if this is what's happened in the past, what can I do, what can I do now in the present and what legacies can I leave in the future? person of Elijah, um, God took a man into the wilderness and, and, and we see the lessons that he um, taught Elijah and we learn from Elijah. God uses the wilderness. Certainly see how he used it in Elijah's life. He took him into the wilderness and exhausted Elijah heard a fresh voice from God. Are you listening even now to the voice of God? And Secondly, God pursues us. He pursued Elijah. He's never mad at us. Uh, he's never, ever uh, uh, going to leave us or turn his back on us. He's there even in the darkest of times. He pursues us. And then third and finally, we see in Elijah's life that God always makes a way. Always makes a way. And that's the idea of hope. We can't live without hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, talks about going through sufferings 
to endure those sufferings. And from uh, that endurance, we gain character. And in that character, we are exper- we experience hope. Go through the wilderness. God always makes a way. I hope you're encouraged uh, this morning by the character of Elijah, uh, even Wilmer, uh, Wilberforce, um, and most importantly, uh, understanding that they point us to Jesus. Um, he is our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful um, for the wilderness experience that you are taking us through right now. Uh, may we hear uh, your quiet, still voice in our hearts all this day and days going forward. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.